Go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin at the first verse. I won't read as much as I usually do today, just just these first two verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, verses 1 and 2. There say amen. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful (laughs) in Christ Jesus, grace be to you in peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. God, we thank you for your unending goodness and your grace and your mercy that you give us each and every single day. God, I ask that you anoint the the remainder of this service, Lord, that you anoint me to properly minister what you have me say today and anoint each of us to... Receive from these two little verses what you have us receive today, God. And I ask that as we travel through what many in the body of Christ can see as a very mundane part of Scripture, that we receive something from it, God, that we receive truth and knowledge from your word, God. And we give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before I continue, and honestly, I don't know if this is the Lord or the flesh, but I, I've just had something on my mind that I want to say about what could happen after a service like the one we had last week. There are mentalities, there are lines of thinking in the body of Christ today, particularly with those who follow the Pentecostal traditions that after a great moving of the Spirit like we had last week, that that has got to keep on uh, one service after the other. And if at any point it stops, then we just, I guess, have spiritually stopped as a body. And you never really see that um, in the Bible. The reason I bring this up is because Church is a place for shouting, and it's a place for lifting up hands and worshiping God. It is a place where we do have the privilege as a corporate body. You can experience the presence of God anywhere, but this, these assemblies right here, there's something special about experiencing God's presence with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are days when God wants us to be blessed with services like the one we had last week. There are also days where it's just time to learn. And those times, those seasons, if you will, are noticeably quieter than those big, bombastic presence of God, Holy Spirit, revival kind of services that we label And what I've noticed among Pentecostal churches, whether they are Church of God, Assembly of God, or non-denominational like we are, is that it's basically this uh, kind of a traditional mindset that we either always have services like the one we had last week, or we might as well not come to church at all. 
And I think that if in our best interest, those of us who do hold on to ideas like that, to probably let it go because not every church service is going to be the same. And just because one church service is quieter than the other church service, that doesn't mean that God isn't moving. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. And he leads us into all things that are true. Some days that's going to be quieter than other days. It doesn't mean, though, that God has stopped speaking or that God has stopped working. It doesn't mean that we have grown spiritually weak if one day is quieter or calmer than the other, okay? It could just mean that God wants us to look at something and just learn something for a moment, okay? And I feel like that's what this message is going to be like. I have talked about it before, how I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading us to look at the New Testament beginning in Galatians as we did last year. And I guess just continue through the New Testament, um, obviously with exceptions of when he calls us to look at another passage of scripture or until he just tells us to stop going through the New Testament the way that we've been doing. And Ephesians, as we know, is the next book in the Bible after Galatians. So this is where we're at. The same way that we were looking at Galatians, we'll look at Ephesians until the Lord says stop or until the Lord for one Sunday morning as he has done interrupts with either a word from another passage of scripture or with just the sovereign outpouring of the spirit as he did last week. So we're going to be looking at this book for a while like we did Galatians. Ephesians is different than Galatians but it's the same. It's the same message being written to a very different group of people. And it's a lot more encouraging, for lack of a better word of a book, than Galatians. Galatians is written to tackle this idea that you cannot work your way into heaven. Ephesians is a letter of encouragement to remind the believer of what they have in Christ. But before we look at that actual message that Paul preaches, let's talk about these two verses. Because as as I have been studying this first chapter... Mainly over the last few weeks, I've noticed in these two verses that there is a lot to unpack. There's, there's a lot of discussion to be had about certain things just in these two verses alone that the church as a whole has great uncertainties over. Mainly things like what exactly an apostle is and do apostles still exist today. I figured it would be best to just kind of focus in on these two verses today and then get on with the rest of it next week or whenever I'm up here again. So let's just look at these two verses. I have no title. This is just, I guess, a teaching kind of Sunday for us here, and there's nothing wrong with that. So let's look at these two verses. The book of Ephesians opens up with the name of its author, Paul. We know Paul's testimony Paul was a man who was a Roman citizen by birth. He was also a member of the Jewish religious group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were enemies of the cross. They hated Jesus Christ and they devoutly persecuted all those who followed after Jesus Christ. They were stuck in the ideas, and I I say they were stuck in, more specifically, 
this religious group was stuck in their own version of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are 600 laws total, at least about 600 laws that God gives for his people to follow in the Old Testament. Well, they say, the historians and the scholars, that between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era, that 400 years had passed in that time frame between the Old Testament and the New, and the New Testament. Four centuries had passed. In the time of those 400 years, the Pharisees become a very popular religious group in Israel, specifically Jerusalem. And the Roman Empire comes to power, and the Roman Empire occupies Israel. So at this point, even when Paul is writing, Israel is just a part of a greater nation at this point in history. Ephesus was a city within the Roman Empire, but far away from where Israel was. Ephesus was the capital city of a part of the Roman Empire called Asia Minor, which today we know as the country Turkey over there in that part of the world. But back at this point in history, Asia Minor was that part of the world. Its capital city, as a part of the Roman Empire, was this city that Paul is writing to, the city of Ephesus. But back to Paul for a minute. Paul was a very devout Pharisee. And because he was a devout Pharisee, that means that he devoutly persecuted the church. Now, you've got to understand what the Pharisees did when I said that they were depending on their own version of the Old Testament. Because between these 400 years, between the Old Testament and the New Testament era, the Pharisees come onto the scene, and whereas the Old Testament already had a total of nearly 600 laws for God's people to follow, the Pharisees added to that an additional 600 laws, which was absolutely heretical on their part, to add to what God has said that is absolutely condemnable right there. And only to make matters worse, they have built a system, a religious system, that is totally dependent on law. And it's not just the actual law that God gave in the Old Testament. It's their law. It's the law that they have made out of the law of God from the Old Testament, also called the Mosaic Law. Because Moses received the Ten Commandments, the law of the Old Testament is also called the law of Moses and the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament law of the Old Covenant. These Pharisees added uh, double to what was originally established by God in the Old Testament, and that is absolutely wrong. But this is what they did. It's for reasons like that where why many people consider the Pharisees as just the prime example group of what a secular religion looks like, what a false religion looks like. It is anti-Christ in spirit, and it makes you totally dependent on works and rules and regulations. Absolutely not the grace of God. Amen. The Pharisees, you can see... While the group itself is extinct today, there is still that same mindset that you can achieve passage into heaven by doing good works, by being a good boy, by being a good girl. And that's just not biblical. 
It's not biblical at all. The only thing that we have going for us is the grace of God through faith in his only son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us at the cross. But Paul didn't know that, or as he was formerly known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he did not know that, he did not accept that, but he was a scholar in the Old Testament law. And we see that, that major, that big intelligence that he had about the law on display all the time in the Old Testament. It's almost ironic because whereas he once used the law to promote the Pharisees' little religion, he then would go on to use the law to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ because all of it points to Christ. Everything of God points you and I to Christ and his finished work. And we see that in Paul's ministry constantly, using God's own law that he once used to persecute the Christians Now, as a Christian, he's using the law to defend the gospel. He uses the law of God a lot to show that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth. We talk about it a lot when talking about Galatians, that the law is a good thing, it's a godly thing, but it does not save. But that's what the Pharisees believed, and that's what they taught, that the law saved, that the law gave passage for you to obtain Salvation, And now, more than ever, that is not the truth. But just to add insult to injury, in adding to the law those additional 600 laws that God never gave anybody, among these laws were absolutely petty things, such as if you were poor, that meant that God's curse was on your life. And if you were rich, that automatically meant that you were blessed by God, that God's blessings were was in your life and stuff like that is why Jesus himself told the story of the rich man and Lazarus to disprove ideas like that because that's not true your economic status has nothing to do with your spiritual status absolutely nothing to do with that but one day on a road to a place called Damascus probably on his way to go persecute some more Christians he literally has a blinding revelation of Jesus Christ Jesus, in his glorified body, appears to Paul and literally blinds the man. And he says to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when Paul is first blinded, he says, who are you, Lord? Which is an odd question. That's like me asking Sister Sue, or, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's if I ask Sister Sue, I don't, Sue, I don't know your name, you know? It's silly. He knew who he was talking to. He knew he was talking to the Lord on that road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Paul, why have you been persecuting me? Now, it's one thing to persecute another man or a woman, but to persecute God is to make yourself an enemy of God. And Paul, no doubt, understood all of that. Because when people persecute God's people... They are, in reality, opposing God himself. And when you've made yourself an enemy of God, which anybody who is under the dominion of sin has with their life, you have one of two options. Humble yourself and surrender to the grace of God by faith in Christ or to suffer eternal judgment. There is no other option than that. Those are your two options. And this moment on that road to Damascus... Saul, as he would have been known at this time, was met with that reality. Either surrender to Christ or 
go the other way. And the other way is not a way that anybody wants to go to if they were to understand what that other way is really like. And so, long story short, Paul goes to a place to pray. And we're led to believe that during his prayer time here, he eventually gave his heart to the Lord because when God called another man to go pray for Paul, or Brother Paul at this point, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, which only a Christian can be filled with the Holy Spirit. God would raise up this man, who was a devout persecutor of the body of Christ, to be probably the greatest evangelist who has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. A lot of people consider to be underneath the Holy Spirit himself, the writer of the New Testament, the man who received the revelation of this new covenant, what it means, how to apply it, how significant Christ's sacrifice is for all who are saved. See, Paul's message is not just the gospel to the lost. His message is also the gospel to the church. Amen. And this group that he's writing to, these Ephesians, it's apparent based off of what he's saying to them that the need for writing to them is that they don't really understand what they have in Christ. They're not doing something terrible like depending on the law like the Galatians were. Compared to the Galatians, these people, the Ephesians, were pretty well off spiritually compared to a group like the Galatians. The Galatians needed correction, but the Ephesians needed an encouragement. They needed to be taught what they have in this walk with God. Now that they are positionally in Christ, they need to know what their life can be like, the blessings that they have in Christ, the capability that they have to successfully live for God as one of his own people. This book is relevant because many Christians, saved people, not talking about lost people, or even people who are playing with false doctrine like the Galatians were. There are a lot of Christians today who don't know what they have in Christ. They think that they are saved and they're, they're, that there's nothing more to their walk with God than just being saved. Paul is here to say that there's a lot more to your walk with God than just your salvation. But there is victory that you can partake of right now here on this earth. That's Paul's message to these people. But before we get into that, let's look at more of that first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's in debate, not necessarily hot debate. I mean, this isn't a subject that, at least from what I've seen, will land you in hot water with a group who would disagree with whatever you believe on this, but a lot of people in the church today seem to be in confusion over what exactly an apostle is. And the reason I say that is because while one group might have a definite idea of what an apostle is exactly, there are at least two or three other groups in the area, I guarantee you, who have a different idea of what exactly this is, an apostle. There are many different explanations that people have to what exactly an apostle is. Some people say that all an apostle was was somebody that God had personally used to write down what we call today the canon of Scripture. There are those who say that apostles were just the people that God used 
to write down these books that are in the New Testament. And that leads us into another discussion, do apostles still exist today? And whether or not you believe they still exist today depends on how you define what exactly an apostle is. If all an apostle is is somebody that God used to write these books of the New Testament, then of course there are no apostles today because the Bible says at the end, don't add to or take away from this. You add to this book, the curses in this book are added to your life. If you take away from this book, a worse punishment is in store. Your name is taken out of the Lamb's book of life. So if that's all an apostle is, then of course they don't exist today. But here's the thing. There are more people who give other definitions of what exactly an apostle is. There are some who define an apostle as somebody who believe or as somebody who operates in all of the gifts of the spirit as well as all of the offices in what we call today the fivefold ministry. The fivefold ministry being pastor, uh, evangelist, teacher, prophet, and then apostle. Five ministries that God gives us, the fivefold ministry is what we call it today. Now, that goes along with your views of the gift of the Spirit. We believe here at this church that all of the gifts are still available to the children of God, the gifts that are given in the New Testament. Uh, my mother ministered on it last uh, week, not just things like speaking in tongues and prophecy, but even gifts that Pentecostals might overlook a lot of the time, like discernment, knowledge, wisdom, faith. We believe here that all of the gifts are still available to the child of God. All right. One of these gifts being the gift of prophecy, which is, depending on the individual, might not just be a gift, but they're calling their ministry. Now, you can't believe that, that prophets still exist if you don't believe in the gift of prophecy. So to those out there are what we call cessationists, brothers and sisters who believe that the gifts have ceased, who believe that prophecy doesn't happen anymore, they cannot believe in a prophet, and if you cannot, and if you believe that the gifts have ceased, then there's no need to believe in an apostle because they say that the apostles operate in all of the gifts. Then there are people who say that the apostle is just somebody who is a big leader of the generation of their Christian, that the Christians of their generation or something like that. And you see that in men like Paul and specifically James and Peter and John, men who were apostles who were leading the early church. Those men, God would use them specifically to lead that first generation of Christians in the known world at their time. They were under the authority of Christ, of course, the heads of the body of Christ for their time. They were leading it. And you see that in all of this. And if you are just as confused as I am now about what an apostle is, that's okay. Because this is what happens whenever we just give one thing every definition that we can think of. That's wrong. Confusion, 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 confusion. So what is the definition of an apostle? I looked it up, and most of you know what this definition is. An apostle is simply defined this way, a sent one. 
That's what an apostle is, which doesn't help at all. <laughs> that that's, I hate that definition because it doesn't tell me anything. I mean, by that definition, the postman is an apostle because he's being sent to the house to give me something. Sent one. Okay. I had somebody say, I had somebody entertain this idea one time because of that definition that every Christian is an apostle, if that's all an apostle is. The issue with that, though, is that Paul said some are called to be apostles. Some are pastors. Some are evangelists. Some prophets. Some apostles. So we know that not every Christian is an apostle because the Bible says so. And here's this definition that's not helping anybody out at all. So what's an apostle? I really don't know. I don't have a clear idea about what exactly this is. I have no reason not to believe that they don't, or I have no reason not to believe that they still exist unless the people saying that the apostles were just those who God used to write the New Testament. I mean, unless that's true, I have no reason to tell you that apostles don't exist anymore or whatever. All I do know is this, Paul is one. And we see Paul as a pastor, we see him as a teacher, we see him as an evangelist, we see him as a prophet. We see him operating, or at least he speaks of his operation, of a wide range of the gifts of the Spirit. And God used him to write these, a lot of these books in the New Testament. Whatever an apostle is, Paul is definitely one, and he was a leader of the early church. He was a leader. He was widely gifted in the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Paul was an important man. He is an important man. Historically, spiritually, whatever an apostle is, Paul is one of those, all right? Paul is an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I think that that whatever an apostle is, we need to dwindle all of this down to this one fact. God calls you to be whoever it is that you are. Now, the roles specifically, the roles of the prophet and the apostle have been so unbelievably, as you all know, commercialized in this country in South America, places in Africa, people make themselves out to be prophets and apostles just so that they could seem important and just so that they can tell people whatever they want to tell them. People title themselves as apostles and prophets just for the sake of authority in a certain body. And when they do that, they can do whatever they want tell whoever, whatever they want, and really use these titles, these offices, to manipulate people, which is wrong. Some people have said, well, if you are an apostle, what's the shame in calling yourself one? Humility, if, if, it, if it comes down to it. James was an apostle, but he did not refer to himself as an apostle. I don't have to refer to myself as a pastor. Our pastor does not have to refer to himself as a pastor. You don't have to, Brother John does not have to call himself a teacher to be who God has called him to be. You get what I'm saying? All right. God makes a path for you. God determines beforehand, before the foundation of the world, God, out of his foreknowledge for those of us who would accept him, laid down the path for our lives, the purposes that each of us have. 
So all of this is up to God. Yes. What you ought to be doing in your life, yes. at our wisest, we're leaving that up to the Lord, and we're just going to follow His leading and His guidance for our lives. So whatever an apostle is, Paul is definitely one, because the Bible says he's one above all else. The Bible says he's one. And Paul, at a lot of this, is just Paul doing what God is telling him to do, going where God is leading him to be. Paul talks about how he has had plans to go and preach at this one place. God led him to go and preach at another place. He's just being obedient to the will of God. So, where was Paul when he wrote this? Paul was in jail. Paul was in jail when he wrote this book to these Ephesians. Paul went to jail three times for the sake of the gospel. The first imprisonment is the one that we sing about where, where he was with Silas. And then the next two are the ones that we don't really sing about that often, uh, especially the third one. But the second time that he was in prison for the sake of the gospel, it wasn't a dungeon, but it was actually the way that Rome did for a lot of their prisoners at this time. It was more of a house arrest. Believe it or not, but Rome had houses built for prisoners, so it wasn't like our prison system. Paul would experience life in a jail cell and in a dungeon, but his second imprisonment, which is the one that most, of, most people are led to believe that he would be in when he wrote the book of Ephesians, was more of a house arrest. He was confined to a house that was built for a prisoner. He was constantly chained to a Roman guard, so all sense of privacy is gone. Um, and on top of that, the Roman government would not really supply you with things like clean clothes and food. Paul had to rely on people to bring him these things. You'll notice at the beginning of the book of Philippians that he actually thanks that church for helping him out during this imprisonment by providing him with necessities like that. And that leads me to another point. It's during what probably is his second imprisonment where Paul would write a collection of books in the Bible that we call today the prison epistles. The prison epistles are the books in the Bible that Paul wrote in prison. They're, they're a collection of books that he wrote during the same imprisonment. These books are Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and later on the book of Philemon. These books, Paul wrote all of them during the same imprisonment. They're not the only books that Paul wrote during his prison time. He wrote to Timothy, writing from a cell beneath a cell. Second Timothy is often said to be Paul's last epistle because that was the epistle he wrote before he would actually be executed by Nero. But wherever he's at, whichever imprisonment this is, Paul is writing from probably his second Roman imprisonment. Nevertheless, this book portrays liberty. From a place of bondage, Paul is preaching liberty. Because you have liberty in Christ wherever you are. There's an article by one college called Alpha Crucis College, which is an Australian Bible college that... I think branched from the Australian Assemblies of God. I looked up their doctrine. They're pretty solid. Here's what they have to say in an article they wrote about the prison epistles. They said, 
The letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written from prison and yet deal with some of the most liberating concepts imaginable. Because from prison, Paul is telling not just the Ephesians, but a few other people out there in Rome that liberty in Christ exists wherever you are as a Christian. Whether you're in jail, whether you're in poverty, wherever you are, you still have liberty in Christ. You are a free person in Christ. This place that he's writing to, the city of Ephesus, as I mentioned earlier, Ephesus was a capital city of the Roman province called Asia Minor, which today is modern Turkey. This city was best known for its marvelous temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Diana. And if you go and look at Google pictures of this temple, it would have been a marvel of a place to be at. The closest thing we have in America that is reminiscent of this temple is the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. They just look very similar, but this temple dedicated to this Greek idol, Diana, would have been one of the great wonders of the world at that time. It was a beautiful, massive temple where these people who worshipped this pagan idol would go to offer up sacrifices and worship that goddess Diana. All that remains today, though, of that temple are just a few columns and a floor. That temple has uh, faded away. Its glory days are long behind it. All that's left of the temple of Diana today are a floor and a few columns. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is still alive and well. Jesus Christ has outlived Diana as he has outlived every false idol. Because unlike everything else that everybody worships, Jesus Christ is not only real, but he is alive. The church here at Ephesus was led by a couple that Paul had done ministry with by the names of Priscilla and Aquila. These people did ministry, evangelistic ministry with Paul, and they apparently stayed in Ephesus during one of the missionary trips and establishment of this church. So it's evident to us that during one of Paul's missionary endeavors, he stopped at this church with Priscilla and Aquila, built this church, and as he continued, Priscilla and Aquila stayed there in Ephesus to pastor or lead that church. All right. So the reasons for writing, as I've already mentioned, are to simply teach the gospel for the Christian to the Christian. The gospel isn't just for the drug addict who's been running away from God for 20 years. Although we pray for that drug addict, the gospel is for the Christian. It's the lifeblood of our walk with God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, Paul is aiming to teach about Christian living. The book of Ephesians has been called by some as the king of the epistles. Because in this book, you have just Christianity just presented to you. This book is Christianity in the form of a book. And for that reason, because of how clearly and eloquently 
Paul, obviously, with the leading of the Holy Spirit over his life when he wrote this, the way that he presents Christianity is in such a clear, concise, yet appropriate way, a way where no stone seems to be left unturned in such a span of a few pages. It's been considered the greatest, by some, the greatest book in the New Testament. A lot of people recommend a book like Ephesians to a new convert, to a spiritually young believer, because it gives such a flawless and godly explanation of what we have in this new covenant in Christ because of his sacrifice. Other people call it the queen of the epistles. This is what actually I've heard most people call Ephesians, the queen, bless you, the queen of epistles, because most people, most Christians, consider the book of Romans to be the Christian book of the Bible. Romans has been called the constitution of the Bible, the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's been called the Declaration of Independence of Christianity. For most people, you just don't top the book of Romans. I know that we shouldn't have this weird ranking class of Bible books to begin with, but a lot of us do. And regardless of how you see the book of Ephesians, most people just seem to have this great respect for this book. It is either the greatest book in the Bible or it is the second greatest book in the Bible. So this obviously is a very important book to be looking at. Now I think it's no coincidence on how these books in the Bible are laid out. This book comes right after a book that the Holy Spirit writes through the Apostle to deal with how you ought to learn to distrust this false idea of legalism. And after that book, there is a book that really focuses in on here is why you trust in Christ and what you have in Christ. So now that we're now that the message of leaving legalism, leaving law behind is behind us, now if you're reading from beginning to end, we're going to focus on how to live as a Christian and what faith affords to us as children of God. Paul's aim is to teach the gospel for the Christian to the Christian and to teach about Christian living. One of the main themes of Ephesians is found in chapter 3, verse 6, which says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. In the Old Testament, the Jews had a special relationship with God. Anybody from any point in history could have known the Lord. I was hearing a message just this morning about Jonah. Some people have, I guess, have this idea that this, that, uh, how do I put it, that relationship with God was just cut off from Gentiles in general back in the day. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, though, because you read the book of Jonah, a story about a Jewish man being sent to a Gentile city to preach salvation to them to avoid God's judgment, which all of these Assyrian Gentiles do accept, and as history shows us, for a hundred years prosper in that relationship with God before losing their faith, but that's a different story. But no Gentile was ever cut off from knowing God. But in the Old Covenant, there was something very special about what the Jews had. Now, you've got to keep in mind, God would bring the Savior of the world 
through the Jewish people. We can see for many reasons why in the Old Testament era, the Jews had a very special relationship with God, a relationship that nobody else has. Yes, they were not the only ones who knew God in the world, but they knew God better than everyone else because God established his personal covenant with these people during that time. And for the longest time, people would prophesy things. I think it was Jeremiah who talked about how God would one day in the future, from his time, bring them in from all over the world. And the way that the Jews apparently interpreted that was, I don't know how to interpret that. This idea that the Gentiles could be in just as close communion with God, just as close and deep a relationship with God as we were, was literally a mystery to the Jews for the longest time because the relationship status they knew with God was just a relationship personally between God and the Jews. This idea that Gentiles could have all the benefits that Jews have and then more was an absolute mystery. Nobody apparently knew how to interpret this. Paul talks about it as a hidden truth from Old Testament saints. If you're a Gentile, all that really means is you're not a Jew. Some people have said that that term can spiritually refer to those who don't know God, which for a long time in the Gentile world would have been the case, not totally. But the way that culture has used that word, especially these days, if you're a Gentile, all that means is that you're not Jewish. And I imagine that everybody in here is a Gentile. I don't think that anybody among us are Jewish. At least I don't think so. But if that's the case, all of us in this place are Gentiles. However, the thing about the New Covenant is that that whole mystery, that whole thing about people being brought in from all over the world that nobody knew how to understand in the Old Testament... Well, that mystery has been solved because now we understand that when God starts talking about bringing them in from all over the world, that means that there is going to come a day where everybody will have that deep personal, personal access to the presence of God, just like the Jews would have had during the Old Covenant. Now, in the Old Covenant, the only person specifically who could go into the presence of God was the high priest. And he could only go into the presence of God one day a year. Now, not only, did you, did not, not only do all of the Jewish people who are resting in Christ have access to the presence of God whenever they want to go into his presence, but everybody in general, yes. it does not Hallelujah. matter the color of their skin or their national origin, yes. where they were born, none of it matters. All who are abiding by faith in Christ have that personal access to the presence of God. So mystery solved. The Gentiles are now included. Paul refers to this inclusion of the Gentiles as an adoption on God's part. Paul would use words that are very controversial in Christianity today, such as chosen and predestination. And these words are in the Bible, which means that we do have to talk about them. But we'll talk about them as we go forward. This letter is a letter, though, of encouragement. 
It's a letter that's written to remind the believers of their grand blessings in Christ. It's a letter that tells us to be thankful for these blessings. And it's a letter that tells us to live in a manner that is worthy of them. You are a child of God. Live like it. This is something that Paul commonly dealt with at the end of his epistles. And Ephesians is no exception. But for right now, here's what we do know. That the believer today needs a book like Ephesians because many people don't know what they have in Christ, but they have more than they could ever ask for in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at going ahead. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we once again thank you, God, for this day. God, we ask that you give us a great week, that you that you keep what I trust you have given to us on our hearts, God, to constantly minister to us, God, that that personal relationship is available to all who are resting in Christ, that the veil between God and all of mankind in general has been torn, and now any who are resting by faith in your Son and by faith in his finished work at the cross have unlimited access into what the writer of Hebrews would call that glorious throne room of grace. Lord, we love you. We ask that you anoint us to live out the life that you have us live throughout this week. Protect us until we gather together again. And God, open doors throughout this week that we may share this great faith with those out there in the world who do not know you personally. And above all else, Lord, we ask that you just receive all the praise and glory and honor. And we say this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.